I do a lot of work in my class around how do you disagree well with people? Like, right. What does it take to change somebody's mind? When did you last change your mind about something? Yeah. Um, how long did it take? Was it difficult? What was the context in which you changed your mind? Did somebody just browbeat you into changing your mind one day or is that not quite how it works? Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Cathy. Hello, Cathy. Hello, Dave. <laughs> you know, we're recording, I should say, to, to, to start it off because I heard a car uh, outside. Uh, we're recording in your flat, so thank you very much for having me here and, uh, and for making me this tea. In fact, it's a pot of tea, so uh, halfway through the episode there'll be an interesting can I pour a second cup or not uh, without knocking the microphone over <laughs> fun uh, moment. So the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? Well, I listen to your podcast, so I feel as if I know you quite well <laughs> because I've been listening since you were on In Pod We Trust on Radio 4, right, so that's about a year. A year yeah. And I listen to it quite regularly, so I feel I know all about your partner Jen, I know the tragic <laughs> story of the dog Nugget, oh, wow. um, I know about your days at Lancaster University, wow. and so yeah, so I feel like I know you quite well and of course you don't really know me at all. No, not really. Yeah. I mean, we've met. Yeah. Like we've we've spent uh, an, an evening together. An interesting evening. Very yes. interesting evening. Uh, yeah, very interesting evening. So yeah, I mean, so how did yeah how did you come to to, to meet me? So you listened yeah. to me. So I listened to the podcast, um, and I was very interested in your work on masculinity because I do some teaching on masculinity, and I write a little bit tangentially in my research about masculinity. And I have a job called graduate tutor at UCL, University College London, where I work. And that involves pastoral care, that involves looking after students who may be in distress for whatever reason. Um, And I think that often comes down to masculinity, discourses of masculinity, Mm. expectations, that kind of thing. Right. And so when I heard your show on masculinity, I thought, I must get Dave to come and talk to our students. And so that was how I met you. I invited you to come and talk to our students, which you yeah, did. Yeah, which I did. Yeah. Um, and that was great. I mean, so I did my show, What About the Men, Mansplaining Masculinity, mm. at the UCL, on your invitation. It was interesting for me because I've done that show a lot of times, but that was probably the biggest audience I've done it to. Oh, really? Um, because I've done it at Edinburgh or I've done right. it in London in relatively... I mean, you know, I've, I've had big audiences for London and not that big audiences for for Edinburgh generally although Mm. that's not to say that the the small audiences that were there didn't really appreciate it but it was definitely kind of a a bigger audience than I normally have but at the same time less of a kind of theatre setup uh, yeah, like it was much it was more of a lecture theatre and like bright lights right and I was using a, a, a radio mic um, yes. So that was kind of like a slightly. It was, it was good because it was freeing for me, and that I could move around the stage in a way that I'm always tempted to. Yeah. But then maybe that's not so good because I'm always tempted to do that, but I choose not to to focus it in. Whereas this time I, I didn't. I don't know. Um, but the audience seemed to, to to get stuff out of it. Certainly, I think. Yeah. So my office hours the following week were absolutely packed with students, all women, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. really keen to talk about it, and a lot of them saying they were very skeptical when they went in. Yeah. They they didn't feel they needed a man to mansplain to them what masculinity was. They felt they knew that very well. Right. <laughs> and that they had 
loved it and they had been really moved by it and had and had it had made them think. That's really interesting. Which is really good. I yeah. mean, the show like the so the show is made to speak to men, um, mm. but everybody's welcome. Mm. Uh, but certainly, having done it for you know for a couple of years now. I've noticed that more women than men are interested in the show to start mm. off with, which is not my that's not my ideal, but it definitely speaks to something about masculinity and gender in general. But also it it is interesting that women often do think that they fully get what it's like to to be a man and live in the kind of prison of masculinity as I like to think of it mm. um, and actually I've been surprised a lot of the time by audience reactions with, of people not knowing about a lot of what it can be to be a man mm. and you know it's not their fault men don't talk about it men yeah. literally don't even tell themselves let alone each other mm. um, so yes yeah, we talk about femininity a lot now don't we it's yeah. become very politicized and we we're still not quite there with masculinity I think right and it's yeah. I mean, and it's right I mean, you know it's right for for all, all, uh, all ways of being to be politicised under the systems that we're living mm, under. Yeah. Like I'm, 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 I'm all for it. I want more men to to politicise masculinity. To, to, oh, to, totally. to yeah. and I hope that that will happen. And it, it is happening, um, but it's it's kind of happening at, at the same time as kind of the worst versions of masculinity are 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 winning mm. uh, across the entire globe maybe I mean you know I mean it's hard to say men have always been in power so they've always been winning in some respects but it's particularly horrible at the moment politically which made it a really interesting time to be doing that show so I did send an email saying just after the Trump election saying now is the time that you need to come and have this conversation about masculinity please come to the please come to the event yeah that's interesting because I felt like oh the Trump election I was kind of like I'm I'm here. I'm talking about masculinity, but really, what I want to be talking about is fascism and like the rise of it and how right. bad things are and economic deprivation. Right. I slipped yeah. in a few references to Trump for sure, uh, which I enjoyed because they were new, um, but also kind of it was bittersweet to to insert them because. Mm. Yeah, I mean, basically, when I wrote that show, the worst things that the men's rights movement and the kind of manosphere had been responsible for were kind of mass murders, which is which are terrible. Mm. Um, but now there's one of them in the White House. So that's a very different time to be doing that show. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And I don't think you have to talk about Trump directly to talk about those issues. In some ways, it's more helpful if you don't. Right. In some ways... So the thing that students kept talking to me about was the dolphin that you brought with you. That was, and everybody said, oh, I feel I nearly cried at the bit with the, with the dolphin. Wow. Um, and I think almost if you, if you change the subject a bit and if you talk about other things that people can relate to, then it stops it being so polarised. Yeah. Not that we have many Trump supporters at UCL, honestly. But no, but it was an interesting... The, the, the other interesting thing about mm-hmm. that gig... Uh, was that you know we did a Q and A session afterwards, which you you me and you were on the stage, yeah. uh, innocently opening it up to an audience, which was predominantly an audience of kind of leftish, liberalish kind of uh, students, young people with hope mm. in their hearts, and mm. and 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 uh, the people who dominated the question and answers were not those students. I know uh, they were the first in real life official 
men's rights activists I've ever met, I think. Mm. I mean, I've spoken to lots online. Yeah. Uh, I've had some of them fill in my questionnaire, which that, that show was about, that questionnaire. Mm. Yeah. I had a few kind of uh, people who defined as men's rights activists, and neo-Nazi, actually, one of them. Oh, Defi- really? Defined self-defined as, as yeah, Self-defined as a neo-Nazi, one of the people right. who filled in that questionnaire, which people can find at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk if you want to read more about that. They're not all men's rights activists. Many of them are very nice uh, caring compassionate men uh, but there is the full range there but I'd never met any in real life mm. and the first one was a woman yes so well, no, maybe like, the no. first no, the first one was a man who sort of started off with the That's soft right. question didn't he he, he sort of said well, it was a sneaky like a, question a bad, a bad time yeah, yeah. Have, you, have you spoken to anyone about that right yeah well it actually turned out that what his theory was is that I will have gone to see a th- therapist and that therapist will have introduced me to the idea of feminism and that will have given me a reason to blame men rather than to blame uh, what he <laughs> whatever you know the individuals involved which mm. you know I was I want to make it clear, in case it's not clear, uh, my show doesn't blame men. Uh, it's, it, no, it doesn't no, blame men at all. It, it blames blame patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. And his uh, reduction of it to blaming men was a reaction I've actually never experienced from audience members. I've had a lot of audience members who don't believe in patriarchy. I've, I've had a lot of audience members who think one thing or another, but I've never known anyone hear my words and think I'm saying men are to blame. Mm. So I think that says a lot about where he's coming from. But yeah. no doubt he'd say the same about me. That's the problem with these kind of arguments, mm. isn't it? That you... I mean, do you think he just wasn't listening? That he'd come with such a fixed idea in his mind that he, he didn't hear what you were saying? I mean, def- I think he definitely had some fixed ideas, didn't he? I mean, he was... He seemed to. His main, his first question to me was basically uh, a kind of gaslighting me, I felt mm. like. And I actually said it said that to him and then had a weird position of being a a man on stage explaining what gaslighting meant which was a nervous uh, moment in fact that whole question and answer session was a series of nervous moments because the second MRA that spoke who I assumed sexistly uh, would not be an MRA because they were a woman Mm. um believed that patriarchy was good for women. Yes. And she made that Because it forces men to marry us if we get pregnant. Patriarchy, so that's better for us. Yeah. And so, (laughs) yeah, then I was in a position of having to explain why patriarchy was bad for women to a woman on a stage in front of a a mixed audience of students. So that was an interesting one for me. Yeah, that was awkward. And, you know, I mean, it was complicated because I I don't want to completely... I think... I was more sympathetic to where she was coming from than him because she had reasons, I think, for where she came at Mm. things for. And also sometimes I think if you don't acknowledge some of the truths that the MRAs use to trick people into believing everything, then you can look like you're a liar. Like, you know, if you don't acknowledge that some things are bad for men, um, if you don't acknowledge that some women were protected by patriarchy as well as many women were damaged by it, Mm -hmm. then... Uh, it would have made her look more right, and I did not want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how did you feel about all of this? So, I mean, my, my first feeling was, so, am I doing a good enough job as a chair here? Right, that was my first, was to sort of to, to feel responsible because I'd invited you into my into my space, yeah. yeah, and I'd asked you to give this talk and you'd made yourself very vulnerable and you'd talked about all these very personal things because I'd asked you to do so. And then the first couple of questions were hostile or at least personal personal right, I think and didn't weren't valuing that experience weren't taking that experience on its own terms but were telling you that you 
you believe things that, that weren't right. Or I should be more that mean you to be my. I should be more mean to my mother. Yeah, this, you should hate your mother. Argument. Yeah. Yeah, and um, why don't? Yes, asking you why you wouldn't condemn your mother, and so I felt awkward and I felt embarrassed, and I and so I. Yeah I, yeah, I felt bad about that. It was that. definitely a complicated moment for and, her. And I sort of thought, and immediately I thought, I shouldn't have opened it up to a Q&A. Like, that, it isn't that sort of show, it isn't appropriate, we should have had more intimate conversations afterwards. So that was my first thought. Well, and I, then I, I was looking desperately around the room for my students, who I trust, to call on them <laughs> to ask questions, which I then did. And yeah. they asked some good questions. And there, was, there yeah. were some great questions. Yeah. And to be fair, it wasn't just those two people who... Um, had some questions around what I was saying. I think no, some sure. some people who weren't, didn't get to speak certainly objected. I think the the person who shouted out, "I don't believe in patriarchy," when I asked the audience, it's the only audience participation moment. That man never never got to ask a question. At he the didn't end. put his hand up actually because I had my eye on him. <laughs> I think he, yeah. I think maybe he realised that my argument was more nuanced than the one that he wanted to attack. Yeah. Um, whereas the other two had come a bit more prepped. I felt like oh. for any kind of argument, they were they were ready. And they were, they were trying to get me to come along to see the, the red pill. So this is how, I don't know if people listening don't know much about the Manosphere. The red pill is kind of a propaganda film for the men's rights movement. Um, so that kind of clearly demarks mm. them to me as, 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 as men's rights activists. And they were human beings. Yeah. You know, people are. Yeah, um, so the woman in particular, she she has quite a moving story about how her identity is very much bound up in having a caring role and caring for her partner and caring for her children and she strongly values being a mother. Right. And, I mean, I, to me, that's a feminist position, actually, yeah. um, that valuing those traits and those that work and those roles in life that have been marginalised because it's associated with the socialisation we get as women... Yeah. Actually, it's feminists like Carol Gilligan, people working in the ethic of care, who have shown us that these are things we should value um, and that we should value them. And by way of valuing them, we disrupt that binary where the male is always the privileged term. Right. Um, so I, I, I tried to say to her, you know, I think feminists have really made this point. Um, well, I, think... I don't disagree with you that being a mother is, is a wonderful thing and that's great that you have this caring role and we would all be dignified by being able to care for each other yeah. in various ways. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, I think, you know, she, the, the problem with feminism as a, as a topic is that it's feminisms, right? It's right, many different of kinds of feminism. And so I felt like she was, first of all, at a slight disadvantage in that she had only one conception of what feminism was and didn't know that there were other options. But also, you know, she had based some of her views of feminists on individual feminists that she'd met in her life who had mm. denied her own agency to define her own personal experience. Mm. And that I'm not down with, you know. So yeah. she was very surprised by me saying, well, I, I don't agree with that feminist, mm. uh, that individual feminist. <laughs> right, um, yeah. You, yeah. Know, like, you know, they were trying to suggest that I was damning all men because of my negative experiences with individual men, um, whereas I feel like they mm. were doing that about feminists, yeah. Yeah, um, whereas right. I don't think I was damning men. Uh, I am one. Uh, and I certainly... I, it's, uh, that was the thing that puzzled me the most, is that, that the show could be read in that way or heard in that way. Mm. Um, but also, I had not been prepared for personal nobody else asked questions like the way that they did but they, mm. those two questions were certainly about right we're going to put your personal life on trial here yeah. and try and kind of weaponize it to make our arguments mm. which I guess I'm guilty of myself I'm using my personal yeah. life to make my own arguments I suppose so, so you put it out there you, you might expect you know, questions on it and I didn't yeah, mind yeah. that so to, in, in response to the, the safe space being not very safe mm. I'm okay with that I'm, I, I'm I don't feel good. like, like yeah. I want this 
show to create debate discussion to to reach people who are not in agreement with it so Mm. that they can be challenged otherwise what's the point in some ways of doing it although there is a point in some ways of kind of just allowing people to know that they're not alone so I don't have a problem with lots of kind of uh, liberal left-wing guilty men uh, finally seeing that they're not alone that's good too but at the same time I want to reach traditional masculine men those are the Mm. ones I want to to meet uh, yes. to, to reach yeah, absolutely. so yeah. in, in that respect I was quite glad uh, and I was, it was refreshing to me and I've never met these kinds of people mm. in person so that was interesting yeah so thanks for that oh I mean, no well that, you know, from my point coming. of view yeah. I, but I can see why from your point of view it was not not the pedagog ped, I'm never going to use any words right particularly when I'm talking to an academic but the ped, <laughs> but like the, 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 the way of it wasn't the teaching experience that you wanted to mm. create right it wasn't. yeah I think that's right and so I thought there were more interesting questions in the room yeah so in the, so what I tried to do is typical chairs trick of taking questions in threes so that you could focus on the questions that you thought were more interesting and perhaps not answer the yeah. slightly more hostile question um, I undercut that, unfortunately, by. Uh, but you really wanted question. to engage with it, which is all, which is excellent, <laughs> which was which was brilliant, and and I should say as well that lots of students did find that a teachable moment actually because they watched you engaging that. You, you didn't try and avoid the question. You didn't brush it off. You took it on. You looked those people in the eye and you said, "I don't agree with you," and you asked them where that experience came from. And the men that did talk to me about it really stressed that experience of watching you take those arguments on and they they thought that was brilliant and they they learned how to take arguments on in a kind of respectful kind but also not not avoidant way right you know what I mean I mean that's interesting because I felt like that those kind of questions those kind of moments are you're not really you're not really responding for the person that you're speaking to necessarily you're speaking Mm. to the room and it's the same in online environments you know it's it's why I think Whilst I understand that tone policing is 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 a thing and that uh, people shouldn't be told to modify their anger, I think if you respond in a polite way, mm. as much as that, I know the word polite is so complicated, but if you do that, you can reach all of the people who are watching yes. in a way that you don't you don't reach those people if you if you just eviscerate the person who's right. who's who's kind of challenging you. Yeah. Um, and and also you know there's a question of like you know can the master's tools dismantle the master's house that kind of thing like I don't know that's probably culturally appropriative to say <laughs> to say but I mean certainly I, I don't know if, if being macho and knocking people down in a very like in this kind right. of macho yeah. way of debate that we uh, is framed I don't think that's worth worthwhile it yes it's not about winning a debate is it yeah. like walking away feeling like yes yeah, I've won like right. this and so we do I do a lot of work in my class around how do you disagree well with people like right. what does it take to change somebody's mind when did you last change your mind about something yeah. um, how long did it take was it difficult what was the context in which you changed your mind did somebody just browbeat you into changing your mind one day or is that not quite how it works right um, but the difficult thing with that is sometimes getting a topic on which UCL undergraduates genuinely disagree because we agree on so much. Right. And so I think that was one of the things that the, the young men particularly in the room really valued was this idea that it wasn't a room just full of UCL people all agreeing with each other again. Mm. So, yeah, they, they liked that, although I thought there were perhaps more interesting questions that were more subtle that we, we could have answered. No doubt, yeah. no doubt. And, but there's always more questions as well. I mean, the, 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 there's never quite enough time in any, yeah. in any question and answer session because with a topic like masculinity, you know you could talk for, for hours and hours and hours and still not be done yeah because um, yeah. there's so much kind of nuance around it as much as people 
don't think there is often mm. that there really is when yeah. you get into it yeah they, they, they don't agree about homeopathy that's the only thing I've discovered well that's a... <laughs> so yeah Okay, I yeah. mean, for, for me, that's a pretty cut and dry one, but uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that there's yeah, some disagreement within that's the That's right, so you have, to, you have to engineer these moments where people can disagree so that we can look at, well, how is this process of disagreement happening? Yeah. Uh, this week we're doing religion, so that might be another Ooh, interesting Oh, that's yeah. always a fun thing yeah. to bring up. So the second question I ask everyone, which probably oh, people, <laughs> yeah, people can probably guess this at this point, but what do you do now? I am a teaching fellow at UCL, University College London, and I teach a, an undergraduate class on international development and public policy. And I teach a postgraduate class, which I co-teach on qualitative research methods. And I'm also a um, graduate tutor, which means that I am in charge of, I said this before, but in charge of pastoral issues right, right? well-being whether um, making sure that students obey the rules and if they can't obey the rules making sure that we bend the rules appropriately to enable them to continue if that's appropriate right yeah oh i should say also i do some research as well yes, right the research yeah, that's part. also part of it but yeah. it's not at this time of the term it's not at the top of my mind right because yeah. you're a teaching fellow but as well as, so as I'm doing a, a lot research, of teaching. Yeah. yeah yeah i've got i've got friends in academia so I, I've, I've got friends who are teacher, teachers and friends who are researchers and ones like you who combine the two yeah i mean what so yeah so so, but what, why did you decide to add a third element of the like, this pastoral role. care? So everybody, so academia should be and always has been about research, teaching, and service, and the pastoral side is the service side. Right. Um, and I, I wasn't particularly attracted to the role of graduate tutor. I was asked to do it, um, and it was presented to me as an honour. Um, and so <laughs> I, I gladly took that honour upon myself. But I, I mean, it does. I think it does play in some ways to the sorts of work I do do in my research and my teaching. That yeah. I'm very interested in. The emotions. Uh, we do a lot of work on the emotions in my class. I make my students write about the emotion, their emotions, uh, and so on. And I also write quite a lot about time. And so I'm interested in um, an idea which comes from Roman Coles, who's an American political theorist. Um, and he talks about the radical ordinary. And he says, forget about democracy as this idea of everybody goes and votes every four years and then they take a seat. Right, that's not really very democratic. Yeah, um, Right, <laughs> as, as we've seen amply in recent months, perhaps, yeah. arguably. And he says that the idea of time bound up in that idea of democracy is this idea that time is very fast, it's linear, you speed from place to place, that t- and that time is well-ordered in some sense. So you cast a vote, you vote for your representatives, and then they do what you say in a kind of temporarily linear way. And he says you shouldn't think about democracy in that way. The time of democracy is different. And he talks about the civil rights movement in the States and he says the most democratic thing that happened was when white people and black people sat together on porches with nothing to do and they were bored and they talked to each other and they rocked. And those were the moments where democracy really happened because people had to talk and they had to listen and they had to be patient. Right. That's what democracy is. And he calls that the radical ordinary. And academia is getting faster and faster. So you're having to write all the time, publish all the time, you've got a huge pile of essays to mark all the time, you're teaching more and more, there's all these demands on your time, you have to sit on committees, and everybody's busy, 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 busy. And as in most professions, that becomes a bit of a badge of honour. You know, I'm so busy, I've only worked 26 hours today, I'm getting behind. the the macho attitude again. Right, very, very macho, yeah, absolutely. And so as a kind of political and feminist response to that, I want to say let's slow down. If it takes half an hour to sit and talk to a student who's crying, maybe that is actually more important 
than finishing off the article or grading those extra 60 essays, right. right? Or sitting on a committee. Like maybe that's the most important thing you'll do today. Right. And you won't have answers to that student. You never do. Like you might be able to show them the right form to fill in. But just the fact that you've sat there for half an hour and you've listened to them when everybody else is busy, busy, busy and they're in this huge impersonal space, that's an incredibly political thing to do. And that's where the democracy is. So, yeah, so, that, so I like the role of graduate tutor for that reason. And I think that I've, I have politicised it in my own small way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know you that well and I've only seen you really that one uh, evening, but you seemed very much like I, I could sense a kind of caring that I, I, I like and respect. And may, uh, maybe I wish that there'd been a bit more of that in my university experience, to be honest. Right. But also it, it's, it's good to see people in positions of like uh, authority and power or whatever who are thinking about the people that they're uh, in charge of, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, and also... Uh, people not seeing it as being in charge of people at all, mm. but actually about facilitating those people to have uh, their own ideas, which I, I really mm. liked about the way uh, that you went about it. Although I felt bad because of the fact that the MRAs took up a lot of my time, and so the people you were trying to, to shepherd and trying to help, uh, I didn't <laughs> get to speak to as much. But I did make sure I did make sure I spoke. To you them. did talk to them, and yeah, I've got some great photos actually of you talking <laughs> to them. Um, but I mean, there is a, there is a sort of context to that as well, which you're probably not aware of, which is that students kept coming up to me and saying, "Do you think we should rescue him?" Because <laughs> you were in well, the middle of these very long, involved I mean, conversations. I can see why they would have felt that. Yeah. So I kept trying to introduce you to new people as a kind of rescue strategy. Yeah, it was very big and. That definitely it was like yeah. a, a lot of a lot of things to process and deal with and sort of like yeah. you know particularly when you're having long involved discussions this this is always brought up by many people but when you're talking about your lived experience it's much mm. more tiring to talk about that because you've got all your extra emotions like you as you say yeah. uh, that are coming around all of that and yes okay in the in the discussion you can keep it sensible and calm but then you have a payout from that like mm. you know gave me a lot of energy as well as it drained me it was a weird I'm glad. weird experience yeah but it was good and yeah. so Certainly the young people, uh, it, it is great to speak to people who are not yet, the light has not dimmed from their yes, eyes yet. Right. They've got some hopes yeah. about the way that the world could be in a way that I, you know, I kind of wish I still had. Yeah. I'm not sure I had it when I was their age, actually, but really? I definitely had it once. Yeah. I know there would have been a time, at least in my, even if it's like when I was seven, I, 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 I would have <laughs> believed and hoped. I mean, and actually, I think I'm one of those people who is very much a knife edge between hoping and despairing. You know, I will flip yeah. between those two. I want to hope, but yeah, uh, but, but logic makes me despair. When, yeah. I look at the, when I look at the evidence, I end up with despair. But I, I think probably, <laughs> I mean, I wonder if it's... So again, I have this kind of idea about time going on here that people, people keep saying that 2016 is you know, the worst year that there's ever been yeah, because, you know, do, David yeah. Bowie has died and, and you know, all, all sorts of bad things have happened, it's true. But, I mean, in the last hundred years, it's not even the worst year ending in 16. Yeah, right. Um, and, I mean, of course, it is for some people and if you do happen to be somebody who's, you know, if you're somebody who's died this year, then you've absolutely lost everything and nobody wants to denigrate that at all. But I do think there is a skill in holding the future open that the future isn't written yet. And I think if you were caught up in this narrative of, of history and time as this sort of long ongoing process and you feel as if this is a story that's been told before and therefore it must inevitably go down the same path that it went down right. last time, then that isn't necessarily the most helpful way of thinking about Absolutely. the future. Absolutely. Right? And I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason it's important now to point out the parallels 
between now and history is so we can change that dynamic mm. not so that we can go oh yeah look we're we're right we're predicting what's happening mm. are we clever as we go to uh, the into the oblivion i mean I, I i do genuinely think that complete despair writing off any possibility of change mm. is exactly what uh, the systems that we are within want us to do yes i mean uh, that's possibly you know, yeah yeah. I mean, and, and you can look at that through time, like you say, like we're not given enough time to think, we're not like, given enough time to communicate with each other, mm. um, but we're also made very tired all the time as yes. well. I mean, that's the, the other thing. politics of tiredness and sleep is like yeah. really, really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then what that makes us do to each other because we're exhausted and we're ratty and, you know, we just want, right, we just want to get this student out of the room right. at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or we it... don't want to get involved in community action or we don't want to get involved in politics. All we, all we have the energy to do is just go vote and then we'll feel better because at least we voted the right way whatever we think that is and it's understandable as well that people don't want to do those things when they have so many obstacles in the way of them it's just that there's a point where some of us somebody has to do something at this point like you know it's too late to we can't just sit around now we have to do something I'm not quite sure what Hopefully, time will tell. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm desperately looking out for where best to put my energy at this moment. Mm. Because I'm, I'm very aware that wasting it in some of the online discourses that I waste it in is not that productive for changing the world. Like mm. changing an individual after, you know, 10 hours of argument mm. to having a slightly more nuanced position is not particularly useful for the big systems of everything, you know. Not, not that it's on my on yeah. me to solve everything. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that either. I'm like I don't think that that thinking you can change the world as an individual is a very helpful attitude either because we can only yeah. change it collectively. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. But I also think that the the work the creative work that you do is incredibly important. So I think that creative work in in the discipline of politics is understudied and we don't think about it enough and we don't think enough about the ways in which creativity can change mm. politics, yeah, yeah, can yeah. change the direction that we're travelling in. So, you know, I think your, your work podcasting, your work talking to my students about masculinity, yeah, yeah. that's genuinely world-changing stuff. In I some hope ways, so. And I, I've, I've had to sort of like, I've come to that, that I, I've come to agree with that position mm. uh, I, after many years of beating myself up for being an inactive activist. I've, uh, I've certainly come to see that I am doing forms of activism mm. and they are just as likely to, to be as effective as some of the other ones that I've not engaged in as much. Um, that said, there comes a point where, you know, drawing a brilliant picture or writing a brilliant song doesn't stop a kind of fascist boot crunching. Uh, and maybe it does. I don't but, know whether but that's there true. Comes, I, no, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know whether that's true, but I definitely feel like, yeah, I, I definitely feel like they're, there comes a point where you have to potentially put yourself on the line as well as make stuff that's. But you do put yourself on the line. You put yourself on the line. You tell the story about your dolphin. And that's you, true, and I wear it. You know, I, and you wear, I, I wear a dress, dress and I'm stage. very yeah. It, it definitely, and it, I was very um when I did that show. I was particularly aware because I had a because of the radio mic. I had to put this belt on that I don't normally wear. Uh, around it and I felt like that was made a particularly it's, a, it's an unflattering dress to begin with but with that belt it, it made it very I was very aware of my my physicality in a way that I don't I don't like to be aware of my body mm. I'm not that kind of a person mm. I wish I was I know uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 yeah. but I mean so it was uh yeah that was particularly vulnerable I guess but I mean yeah I, I, I guess 
t- t- again, time will tell. I, I, I feel at the moment a call to do something a bit more than just what I'm doing uh, in response to all the things going on. But I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what this call is to. And it may just be to another creative project, no me. Uh, so, right, you know, that's not that's good, good too. I know, no, I know, I know. Yeah. It's, it's um, good to hear someone completely outside of my wheelhouse. Like, you know, not wheelhouse, but you're, you, you're not someone who I particularly know very well. So it's really good for me to hear you telling me that these things are good. Because when people, you know, tell you this stuff, mm-hmm. you're kind of more inclined to go, yeah, yeah, you're just trying to make me feel better. Or yeah, 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 you're just, you know, whatever. But it's just good. Right. Thinking about this moment when people change their minds, and sometimes people do. I've changed my mind a lot. Yeah, me and too. I've changed it back and forth. Loads. And that, that, yeah, and that never happens because somebody came up with a killer argument, and then I went away and thought about it and thought, oh yeah, <laughs> Steve's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's happened because I've heard a great story, or I've listened to a song, or right. you know. And so I had an experience with a student who she was a young Muslim woman, and she was talking to me about how her mum and all her mum's friends had totally changed their view on homosexuality because they bought EastEnders and there'd been an out gay Muslim character on EastEnders and they all loved that and they'd all talked about it amongst themselves. Wow. And now they were down with, <laughs> with the That's gays. Great. Yeah, which is awesome. And, and I'm sure, you know, EastEnders, I don't know how, whether this has been studied, it probably has, but things like EastEnders and Coronation Street you know I they mean, had a trans character quite early say, on didn't they yeah, yeah I mean well there's a trans man on EastEnders at the moment oh well. is that I don't yeah. follow it but no, nor yeah. do I. I only know because I, my students I, tell I, me I, only, I follow the politics <laughs> and they, they, yes, they reference yes. EastEnders occasionally yes exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's been a gay vicar on and everything hasn't right, there so it's right, all very right. interesting um, yeah so I mean I do think that stories are what change things I yeah. hope so too, I, and I, I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, but I do think, like, I guess there there is a point where you kind of have to push back against the actual risk for a bit before you can tell the new stories after that point as well. I feel like I don't know. We'll see. I hope that stories can can stop the tides of of all of these kind of movements that are happening across the world. But I I, I suspect it's going to involve multi a multifaceted approach. Right, yes. it's not can't yeah. just be stories. It can't just be activism. It can't just be mm. whatever you know. People do what they right. Well, they so can, what of they all do, the yeah. people, Gordon Brown used to say, <laughs> everybody's got a talent, and people just need to have the opportunity to use it. Um, mm. And whatever you think about him, I just think that's such a perfect insight that everybody's got something that they're good at, no matter mm-hmm. who they are. Yeah, I think so. Um, and probably a couple of things, maybe even three. <laughs> um, and another dubious character, so Woody Allen. I don't, I don't know the exact quotes. Even more dubious. Yeah, yeah. So we need Adam Buxton's fact-checking Santa to tell us exactly where the quotes came from. You listen to Adam Buxton's podcast? I have, but yeah. So he has a little pause if people aren't aware when they're talking of the exact quote, and fact-checking Santa comes on and explains oh, cool. the exact quote. So well, like, for the, in, I offer that to for, you. Well, yeah. for this show, uh, people should always assume that they should fact-check anything that me or a guest says because this is a conversation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Google is our friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but so I think. Some Woody Allen, I think, was talking to God, but it may not have been God, um, and asked, um, what should I do? Because the world is so terrible, it's such a terrible place, and I feel like I want to make these serious films that address these issues, um, but somehow it doesn't, it never lands, it never comes across. And God said, just make funnier films, like, make your films funnier. Right. Yeah, and, and I, I think, think that's right. I think there's a truth in that. Uh, although Woody Allen is not someone I like to to think about at all these days, um, unfortunately. Um, And this is the... So do you think that makes his films not watchable then? Like, do you think it 
Well, his behaviour validates the art that he's made. It's tricky because I already he annoyed me a little bit anyway. Okay. But now I've got even more reason to be annoyed by him. That's mm. which is not to say there aren't some of his films I do like, but it definitely it it's hard to separate that from a lot of things really because of the fact that his films are so much about the dynamic between him and young women and all of this sort of stuff mm. that I find that hard to separate. I mean. This is that's a it's a big question. Can you separate the artist from the art? I mean, ultimately, I think mm. we do. Uh, I believe in the death of the author kind of theory. I, yeah. I think that we make our own meaning, and if mm. someone doesn't know what Woody Allen's personal life is, then they're going to have their own relationship to that film mm. that's valid and nothing to do with Woody Allen, nothing to do yeah. with anything that he intended, and um, enables you to critique that power dynamic right. in a film like Manhattan. Yeah. Right, and actually, you know, I think it's true that there is definitely enough in his films of criticism towards that power dynamic for people who want to to go that way. It's just, mm. um, it's just when it's like Bill Cosby. It's like when people have been to a certain point, you just can't, you know. I mean, you can't like. I mean, you know, it's it's a it, it's an inevitable thing, though. I think that the more we find out about how power has uh, allowed people to be to do these terrible things, the the more we'll find these people who we had respect for turn out to be less than what we hoped. But ultimately. As tricky as it is, I, I'm, I'm not forgiving any of these individuals. It is a system that has allowed them to do that. And I feel like we need to sort of have these things as reasons to tear down those systems more mm. rather than hate ourselves for enjoying the Cosby Show as children. Right. You yeah. know, there, there's, there's limits. And also the Cosby Show was incredibly important for lots of people of right. colour, um, yeah. you know, as well as it was also, you know, you know, I mean, you know, it's complicated situation and again I'm yeah. a man talking about these things where so there's other people. white people can yeah exactly right talk, yeah. there's other people who have m- maybe more insight to say but um I think we can separate our artists from their art and I also think that um I like the I like the phrase you know uh, all our fra- all our faves are problematic you know mm, it's true and, course, that, and once you yeah. accept that and I am I'm problematic you're problematic we're all problematic yeah. we're trying to solve that problem mm. some of us are doing better than others um, some of us don't even know that there's a problem and need to be have that explained to them yeah. but you know there is this this sense of like it's okay for to like things done by terrible people, but it, you've got to still speak out about the people's terrible behaviour. You can't allow the, your love for that art mm. to make you forgive them for whatever, you know. Yeah, it doesn't exempt them from going to prison. Right. But it, also, I'm not sure that it means we shouldn't watch their stuff. No, 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 I mean... Um, and, if you, you know, and if you extended that logic back in time, all the, all the art that we could, we could no longer look at, mm. would, I mean, I think it would be tragic. And I also, so I think I have a slightly different view of power than you do. Interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you read Foucault. If you, that's something that you read I've at read, university. I've read Foucault, yeah. yeah. So um, often, when you talk about power, you talk about it as if it's this monolithic, systemic thing that maybe people have and use and exercise, and, and it's the people that have it. And Foucault thought about power as a slightly different thing. He thought about it as non-subjective. Right, so power is everywhere, yeah. and it's the power that creates the people, and and it creates all the different people within us as individuals. Yeah, I'm broadly speaking in agreement with Foucault on that. Yeah, and so where there's power, there's always resistance. So you can make a film like Manhattan. Or when I was um, an undergraduate, I was very interested in Milan Kundera. Um, I studied I studied Czech, 
and um, he's terrible sort of you know, his books are these awful sexist documents. Yeah, yeah. But you can do brilliant feminist... I didn't, but other people have done brilliant feminist readings of them because they show how masculinity works in that particular scenario right. in Eastern Europe at that time. Well, this is why... Europe, th- that's say. the yeah. same reason. I mean, I enjoy the, the work, uh, and this is, you know, an unusual thing for a feminist man to say, um, but I, I enjoy the work of, uh, of Mikhail Huelbeck. Uh, the French yes, yeah. uh, racist misogynist, right. um, and you know, but but his books are about racism and misogyny mm. in a way that a lot of other people don't. They're not as honest as him. Mm. Like his his work is so honest yeah. uh, and so true to something mm. um, that it that it, that it, I, I find them incredibly useful texts yeah. uh, to, for the study of misogyny. And you could always read texts against themselves. It's something in the nature of language that means you could always read something against itself and come up with a new reading, a fresh reading. Right. So you see when you see performances of Shakespeare when you see Shylock right. now or something right, right? so yeah I well, Shakespeare's the best for this I mean exactly. like it's such yeah. a his, his texts are so open and they may not even all be all be authored by him um, but they're so what? they're so open <laughs> yeah. uh, to any interpretation that there's I mean I yeah. you know I studied theory at university and I, yes, I yes, I'm, course, yeah. I'm dead into uh, reinterpretations of Shakespeare is what I did my dissertation on even though oh really yeah I did it in a slightly provocative form like I did it as a stream of consciousness uh, kind of piece of uh, creative writing Ooh, how did, did that go down not not well yeah. uh, in some ways no I mean like I did a couple of pieces of, of work that were designed to deconstruct the system that they were within at university and both of them mm. got mediocre marks which is I actually had I have I had a piece of paper I got one of the things because they went to external markers mm. and I actually saw that um, what my actual tutors had said is uh, this student wants to get a, either a high grade or a low grade so we think it's only appropriate to give him a mediocre <laughs> And then the outside examiners were like, no, that's not a good reason to give someone a grade. So they marked it up a, lo- a lot. Right. Um, but yeah, like it didn't go down well. Particularly, that's but, interesting. But I mean, I started it with a kind of introduction that was proper academic one uh-huh. to prove I could do it mm-hmm. before I broke the rules. Like Picasso doing all his these beautiful <laughs> right. kind of realistic right, right, right. Before paintings I s- before going into his cubist face. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, was a, it was an essay about reinterpretations of King Lear, so I, I styled myself as King Lear and the three interpretations as my daughters. Um, well, it's Well, it's, it was fun to do, but it didn't go down very well. But this is the thing. I, don't, I didn't mind, uh, in a way. Like, I, they were right. I wanted to get either a, a first for it or to be failed for it. Like, I, I literally did want those things. And they yeah, did, and so they, you stick your fingers up and at the they didn't, And they didn't give yeah. me either of them, which was a good learning experience. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose these, these things are a genre, aren't they? Right. So if you set out to write a detective novel and actually it turns into something completely different, right. people who read detective novels won't get it right. or might not get and it. And you could say it's not a very effective detective no- novel. Exactly. Right. And exactly. so they're, they're, not, yeah. you know, they're not wrong to say it's not a very effective uh, piece of academic dissertation. Undergraduate dissertation. It was, it, was, yeah. it, was, it was not good at that, but that's because I was not interested in, in, in making it that. Uh, so we had a dis- disagreement about mm. what it should be, but I can understand on their criteria. So when you so you were an undergraduate, what did you study? So you um, so I did modern languages. Right. I, I did that at Oxford in the nineties, which was an interesting experience in all sorts of ways. Um, and I yeah I did I did Czech um, and French, but right. Czech mainly because French was sort of easier for me because I'd done A level French and Czech was this kind of what. How can this be so difficult? How can it be possible that a noun could have thirty two possible endings? And I don't know which one to use in any given scenario. Wow. <laughs> um, 
true fact. That's, true story. That's big. I mean, yeah. I, st- I, 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 I can't speak any languages apart from English, but I studied Japanese at school. And did you? Uh, and so I have a familiarity with how the fuck does this language work yeah. uh, kind of feel. Not being able to write something down. So I, I lived in Pakistan for a while and I tried to learn Urdu and my Urdu is useless. And part of the reason it's useless is because I can't write. And if I can't write something down, I can't remember it. That's just, some people can, some people yeah, got better oral memories, but think. I just don't yeah. think that way. So yeah, so Czech, Czech was easier than Urdu in that way, but right. yeah. So you studied languages. I studied languages, But yeah. your most recent book is called Democracy, Promotion is Foreign Policy. It is, thank you. So how, 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 <laughs> did, how did we get, how did you get from languages to that book? So it's interesting, because I've, <laughs> like, I've got a really neat story that I can tell you where I've tied up all the ends, and I've made it, and I've told it so many times now that it seems like it's a true story. Right. Whereas, in fact, it was just chaos. Was just right, right, right. But, um, so I studied, <laughs> I studied French and Czech, and then I finished doing that, and I really wanted to write a PhD on masks and mirrors in the um, fiction of Milan Kundera. And um, there was no money available for that, and that nobody, you know, it wasn't that people were interested but I, I would have needed funding at that time of my life to, to do that so I didn't carry on in academic work at that time and because I spoke Czech around that time the European Union was taking these Eastern European countries Central European countries in as EU accession countries which meant that there were projects which meant there was um, human rights projects and fiscal reform projects and that kind of thing happening in those countries and so I got a job at the British Council working on those sorts of projects and really I was very very junior I was sort of making the tea and doing the filing and sorting out receipts and things like that uh, but my friend who did a similar job said oh, I'm an admin assistant whereas I said oh I work on a team which manages um, international development projects in Central <laughs> East Europe <laughs> because that's what that's what you have to do isn't it yeah that's what so, men, that's what men do exactly exactly yeah if I I've was a man I wouldn't even mention I've that, I that, just, that yeah. apparently all men are doing this uh, yeah. and I have not been doing this so I, I've not been getting as much of my male privilege as I should oh um, see so should, I'm going to try and be better yourself. at it more yeah but, anyway. so, but no no you should you should no. be exactly as you are but so um, <laughs> so I did that for a bit and then the Czech Republic joined the European Union and no more work in that area. But by that time, I was kind of an international development person within the British Council. And so I moved, first of all, into a job working on a um, project in Botswana. And the Botswana government had money at that time because there were diamonds in Botswana. And so they were using that money to send students to the UK to study things like medicine and architecture where there wasn't courses available in Botswana. And you might argue, well, they should have spent that money making those courses available in Botswana. And we did argue that, but that it was their money, that was what they decided to do, so we managed that for them, and I was part of the team that did that. And I went to Botswana, which was great, and then I was promoted, and that meant that I worked on projects in Pakistan and Afghanistan. First of all, as a desk officer, sitting in Manchester, which is sort of near where I'm from. And then I lost an election as a local councillor, and I may be on the record of saying, if the people of Sedgley Park don't want me, maybe the people of Pakistan will. <laughs> and so I applied for a job in Pakistan. And I'd never, been, I'd never been to Asia or South Asia at all. And I was 28 and I got on a plane and went to Pakistan to do this job managing development projects, which started out mainly gender projects, which was good, was up my street and I enjoyed. And then when the bombings happened in 2005 in London, suddenly it became my job 
to promote democracy in Pakistan. Right. Which, if you think about it, and I didn't much at the time, at the time that seemed to be a perfectly natural thing to do. But if you think about it, it's odd on two levels. So first of all, you've got British bombers bombing the British capital city, allegedly because they didn't agree with British foreign policy. That's what they said. So why is Pakistan sort of the location where we promote democracy? And secondly, why democracy? Why is democracy the opposite of bombing in London? Yeah, and I so that's kind of the that. right. Yeah. So that's the, so that's the introduction to my book. That that's the kind of puzzle that I wanted to solve. What are the, if you like, what are the conditions of possibility, right, um, for that to happen? But to go back to my life story, since I'm making sense of it, whilst I was doing that and becoming a bit disillusioned with my job, becoming a bit disillusioned with the international development apparatus, feeling as if I was working in the political system of a country where I didn't really have a stake, I wasn't staying, I didn't speak the language. Right, and you're a colonial force, essentially. I'm like, British, right, white so it's complicated. telling people how to behave. Yeah, so white girl goes and saves Asia, it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's not a good look, I no. think, um, <laughs> even if you do try really hard to learn Urdu. Right. So I, and I kind of, that dawned on me over yeah. the process of, of years, and I... At the same time, I was studying. I was always studying. So right from finishing my my first degree, I was doing open university courses just because that's what I like. And I found that I was still quite good at that. And so I decided that I would come back to Britain and I would be in a community where I did have a stake and I would stake my claim here. And I would do a master's and then a PhD. And so that's and I did that at UCL where I now work. And that PhD became this book. Right. Yeah, which is just which has just come out. It looks nice, as you as you said to me. The the, the front the picture on the front is yeah. is nice. It's thin, which is good for a book. They made me cut it down quite well, a lot. Yeah. For someone who's, who's interested in the politics of time, it's good, yeah. it's good to have a short book <laughs> these days. But it's also like I don't know, like it's it's an interesting thing for you to have been somebody doing that process. Mm. And then for you to come and reflect on that process. I mean, and I know this partly because we we had we vaguely talked about this when we first met. I mean, it's a complicated situation, I guess, being a white person writing about this stuff, right? Mm. And and uh, white people writing about racism and white people writing about colonialism and all of mm. these sorts of things. I mean, how do you feel about that kind of yeah. element of it? Yeah. So I've, as you can imagine, I've thought quite a lot about that. Yeah. And the way and the way I, I've squared it to myself. So you are a man talking about masculinity, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So I thought, well, and, and I took inspiration from those kinds of writers, men writing about masculinity, think, actually, I don't want to write about how people in Pakistan are deficient and not democratic enough. Like, that's... I mean, on what basis do I say that? Right. And how fair is that? And is that even my business? What I'm interested in is whiteness. Right. And how a colonial history has constructed Britain as the country that it is. So we tell this story... We tell this story that Britain has got this long and uninterrupted thousand year history in which we've been continually getting more and more democratic. And we tell this story all the time. And it's part of the politics of the history curriculum. So all this business of, you know, we should be teaching narrative history in our schools is actually, I think, an agenda around teaching children how Britain became more and more democratic over the years from Magna Carta onwards. Um, Mm. And we fought... Right, we, this constructed we, fought Catholics because they weren't very democratic and then we fought Nazis because they weren't democratic and then we fought communists because they weren't very democratic and then 1989 came and everyone became democratic and we'd won and now we look at countries like Pakistan and we feel embarrassed and ashamed because that inevitable process of history was blocked in places like that by us so we should feel bad 
um, and we should now enable them to enter into the same history that we've had and become democratic themselves. And what I want to say is, actually, there's been a lot of post-colonial scholarship saying that story about Pakistan is wrong, yeah. right? that story about South Asia is wrong, that there's always been deliberation, there's always been debate, there's always been politics, there's always been ways of making decisions that are more or less democratic in the same way that liberal democracy is more or less democratic. Yeah. So there's lots of people say that. Lots of people say that story about Pakistan assumes that the authority and the proper story is always somewhere else. But really nobody's asked the question, can we put our own story at risk? Is the story we tell about ourselves completely wrong? Is it true that we got progressively more and more democratic over time? Right. Is this is this is this a good story Can to be telling about ourselves? Can you call democracy democracy? Is a question I often ask. Right. Like we, we we go around the world saying we are democracy, mm. but when you look at our system, I mean that we you know America is 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 just got a, a president that they didn't vote for. We've got a, a, a prime minister that we didn't vote for. I'm not clear that this is democracy not in the, my understanding of democracy mm, i'm not, I'm not yeah. anti-democracy necessarily mm. i mean although democracy has been so many things since it was yeah. conceived in athens or whatever and so gayatri spivak says democracy is one of those things that it's impossible not to want you try and imagine not wanting democracy it's, right. it's impossible but there are models of democracy there are different models of democracy and this elision between liberal electoral democracy, where we all go and vote, and we have this clearly delineated public and private sphere, where the private sphere is understood to be kind of out with the management of the state. That's very specific, it's very modern, it's very deficient in all sorts of ways, and all sorts of other models of democracy either have been tried, whether that's the Athenian demos, or whether that's social democratic models in Scandinavia, places like that, whether it's the Italian city-state and republicanism whether it's experiments with citizens' juries and deliberative democracy that happened, it's happened, this work on um, Canada, where that sort of thing has been tried. Anarchist collectives. Anarchist collectives I mean, occupy, you know, that, those sorts of yeah, movements, absolutely. right? And then, and then there's all these other kinds of democracy that people have just imagined, that are just in theory. And then there are um, things like, so I write a little bit in the book about the Jirga in Pakistan, where everybody, and so somebody said to me, this is an anecdote that I managed to shoehorn in, someone in Pakistan said to me, you think you're coming here and promoting democracy, why don't you come to my village, where everybody sits down in a circle and we all talk, and we get to the bottom of it, and then we all decide. That's democracy, we could teach you. Absolutely. But of course what he meant was all men. <laughs> right, that's an interesting um, yeah. point. Yeah. So, and you know... I, I but mean, it is still something that is, he's right too. Yeah, but, like but, the, those we, two things are both true. I mean, this is that's a, right, and we're both living with these flawed models of democracy right. that don't really do what we hope they'll do, and don't really give us, you know, the things that we feel we need, and right. exclude some people in all sorts of arbitrary ways. Yeah. So in in our recent referendum, we said everybody got to vote, and what we meant was all the British citizens, not the EU citizens. Yeah. Right. So it's the same kind of logic in a way. The idea that liberal democracy is the only kind of democracy, I think, comes from this story that it's taken a thousand years for us to hone this. Right? Right. It's taken us a thousand years to fight for it. This static thing that people seem to think exists as well. Yeah. Like our, our, our democracy has changed so many times, over mm. the, you know, just in the course of my life, let alone mm. last, like my dad's 92, you know, yes, he's yeah. seen, he's seen our democracy, he's seen like Attlee and the formation of the welfare state and he's seen Thatcher. Yeah. And those are not the same democracy. Those two moments mm. are not the same, the, th- the same forces are not at play, the same people don't have voices. It's really interesting yeah. to think of it like this. I mean, and that's why I'm excited about that kind of a book because I think it's so rare that 
it's so rare that white people think about whiteness, mm. but it's also so rare that people in the West, in inverted commas, whatever that means, the global North, think about how our system is as flawed and constructed as all of the things that we object to. But also isn't like, is one of the things that, and I haven't read the book, so full disclosure, but is one of the things is one of the things that you think think about like the fact that we are also bombing a lot of these countries that we are claiming to or do or do you do not touch the, you right, don't grasp so that I did, well like, I, I sort of I touch on it but right. so one of the things I argue is that democracy promotion actually is usually a, a lot more boring than that right um, and so there are exceptionally there are these attempts at regime change there are these attempts at bombing and that becomes very contested. But if you read the academic literature on democracy promotion, everybody agrees that that's not a very good way of promoting democracy. Right. But people still think democracy is something that should be promoted. Right, but I guess the, the, the problem is this essential hypocrisy of the mm. fact that I don't, I, I don't disagree with you that people go, are going out and trying to convert people to democracy more often than they are throwing bombs. Mm. But the thing is, the areas where the bombs are being thrown give, take away any legitimacy to the arguments of our, of us going in like we we can we can be demonstrably proven to be we are we are democratic countries bombing other countries that is not a democ- democratic process they're not getting a vote about whether those bombs come mm. so why are people going to listen to us i guess it's, it's yeah. less to do with that being the majority of democracy uh, promotion and more to do with that Making us hypocrites, invalidating our argument. No, it's very absolutely. It's very problematic. And, um, <laughs> uh, so there is, there is this. Are you sure you want to go on statement saying bombing is problematic? <laughs> it's a very yes, controversial that view. Such, that was such an academic, <laughs> mealy mouth thing to say. Was, yes, well, no, but I mean, I, yeah, yes, I okay, totally so got what you mean. We're, we're opposed to bombing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can agree on that. Yeah. Uh, no, definitely. But and, but I suppose that what I'm, all I'm saying is that isn't necessarily my focus actually. Yeah, yeah, But, uh, yeah, but sure. there is work on this, and so there is this idea, the democratic peace theory, which is meant to be the closest thing we have to an empirically iron law in international relations which is this idea that democracies don't fight each other and right, that, that seems to be true and there are all sorts of good reasons for that but there is this other side this dark side to the democratic peace theory and a guy called christopher hobson has written quite nicely about it that what democracies do do is go to war with non-democracies using democracy as the justification right right so democratic peace theory sort of cuts both ways in that sense right that's really interesting. And it's also interesting because of the fact that, that we're living in a time which is strange for democracy promotion because we're seeing democracies stop being democracies across the world. Mm. Uh, like, you know, I think you could easily say that parts of Europe are no longer democratic mm. in a way that we'd like to say Europe's democratic and you guys over there, you're the ones in the dark ages. But actually, Europe's going back towards those dark ages in many cases. Ah. Ah, okay. Oh, so and I don't really believe in the dark age. I want <laughs> right. to make that clear. Problematic, fra- problematic te- phrase. I don't really believe in it. But go on, tell me yeah, why so, I'm wrong. Well, so, I, I, I am wrong. So tell me. Tell no, me. well, so I, so this subtitle of the book is this temporal othering, right? So temporal othering is this idea that um, people who aren't democratic are back in the past, right? Somehow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and you see it everywhere. And so I looked at all the newspaper reports that came out when the London bombings happened. And also all the newspaper reports that came out at the time of the Salman Rushdie affair in 1989, um, which um, 
if you don't know, is um, so there was a, a supposedly blasphemous book by Salman Rushdie was published Satan- in Britain, Satanic the Satanic Verses, yeah. and a lot of Muslims were very opposed to it, and um, there were some death threats to Salman Rushdie, which were very serious. Kathy, after we'd finished recording, sent me an email because she was worried that she'd mangled her explanation of the Salman Rushdie affair. And she was definitely sure that she talked about the people involved who had died without remembering their names, which she didn't feel was respectful. So she wanted me to include this extract from her book, which talks about the deaths in a respectful way. A condemnation of violence is not difficult to provide. The Ayatollah Khomeini's pronouncement of a death sentence against Salman Rushdie, along with a reward for carrying it out, was reckless and dangerous in the extreme. Salman Rushdie was put through many years of terror, humiliation and extreme inconvenience when he had committed no crime. His colleagues were tragically yet more unfortunate. His Japanese translator Hitoshi Igarashi was stabbed to death and Ittori Capriolo, the Italian translator, was severely wounded in 1991, whilst in 1993, 37 people died in Turkey in a fire that had been targeted at Aziz Nezan, the Turkish translator, who himself survived. Also in 1993, William Nygaard, Rushdie's publisher in Norway, was shot three times and was seriously injured. These were each terrible acts for which there can be no excuse. And... Additionally, if I got any of those pronunciations of names wrong, that is totally on me and not on Cathy. But yes, so when you look at these newspaper reports, there's all these ideas that um, Muslims are somehow, they're primitive, they're barbaric, they're medieval, um, unless they will sign up and subscribe to democracy. And if they will sign up and subscribe to democracy, then that means they're fine. They're the sort of good yeah. Muslim. Again, I'm more interested in this country, right? Yeah. So I'm interested in the ways in which democracy is used to domesticate mm-hmm. British populations, local populations. So you've got this perplexity, this worry that you seem to have people living in Britain who are foreign. Right. And we know they're foreign because they're at war with us, right? They want to kill authors when that's against our sacrament of free speech and they want to bomb our underground system so they must be at war with us this must be a war so they must be foreign because you would only ever be at war with another whereas when 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 white men explode things we're then they're lone wolves lone wolf mental health issues all of these things right exactly so so that's what's that's the so i'm not saying i agree with that right i'm saying that's the logic of the story that, that that they are othered um, and all Muslims are othered by being back in the past barbaric, medieval, right, right. unless they will sign up to democracy. And if they will sign up for democracy, then they're fine. They've been domesticated, if you like. Right. And that, yeah. other, that othering was what I was kind of trying to refer to rather than endorsing. Yes, of course. Uh, when, yeah, when, I was, yeah. when I was using that phrase. But I think that's really important to, to make clear. It's, it's definitely a strange time. I, I, definitely this idea of the Dark Ages anyway. What does that even mean? I mean, you know, it, it, that across Europe, there were lots of different cultures going on. It wasn't dark for the world it was you know this is very interesting that when we're talking about the dark ages we're talking about a time when the muslim world were much more advanced than us the lights you know yeah like so it's very interesting that people are like saying oh they're back in the dark ages and it's also interesting about like there's a thing that isis is seen as kind of um you know stone age dark right. age and, they, using and they're technology using technology that was invented right, yeah. right right and so there was this idea <laughs> and again i've forgotten the name of the author who says this And since we're doing this fact-checking Santa thing, 
Here's another detail that Cathy sent over to me after reflecting on the conversation that we'd had. The person who writes about ISIS and the militarization of time is Shahzad Bashir. Um, but he says that what ISIS have done is they have weaponized time. Right? Because they've got all these tropes, all these ideas about a kind of pristine past that they want the other Muslims to live in. Right. right? And they are using that as a weapon. And in order to use that as a weapon, they're using the internet, which is this technology that was invented 25 years ago, right. Right? which is so interesting. And it's, well, it's interesting, this idea of, of that's generally the case, actually, because, I mean, you can see Trump as, 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 as weaponising time uh, in a similar way, I think, because he, he's sort of saying, harken back the to golden these golden past. ideas that, yes. that don't exist. I mean, it's not yeah. a caliphate, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fictional world that never existed similarly. And, yeah. and yeah. you know, they're, they're, and he's weaponising the... You know that that through Twitter. I mean, at the moment, the yes, biggest yeah. weapon that the Trump administration is using, in my view, kind of kind of against democracy, is Twitter, which is a, a, a real surprise for somebody who, who who used to think of Twitter as quite a nice and positive force. I mean, obviously, a long time ago, because nowadays no one thinks of Twitter as positive. But there was a time when it's know, you know, there was a I time know, when there was yeah. the Arab Spring. There was all sorts of things that Twitter has had some uh, positive role in. Mm. But now. Uh, very interesting, but but that's interesting. You're thinking about temporal issues all around this stuff. That's mm. really interesting. Is it, I mean, I think it's, it's, it seems so obvious to me that temp, that time is such a big part of all this, but I've not really thought of it in this kind of way until today. So it's really interesting. Uh, it's always nice when you can express something which seemed intuitive to people already. Yeah, it takes, yeah right. it takes a lot of thought and a lot of years of writing to get to the point where you can right. express something that actually is quite intuitive. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's like the, th- the yeah. theory of intersectionality is exactly. similar to that. Yeah, in that yeah. it took a long, long time, a long process, but now it's a theory that people are like, oh yeah. Yes, yeah, of course. That's of course. right. I can see that. That's, yeah, that's yeah. visibly in my life. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, and that's interesting that you're thinking about how what you said how democracy domesticates mm-hmm. people. Like it's 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 really nice and interesting that you're deconstructing our culture when you're looking right. at democracy. That it's that if we're promoting democracy, what are we actually doing to our country through the process mm-hmm. of democracy? I mean. I guess exactly. that's kind of a question as well. Like, what are we doing? What's your view on, on that? Like, how is that? Yeah, so, um, so I think this... Uh, so when I talk about democracy promotion, again, if you read the literature on democracy promotion, they talk about training journalists and funding electoral commissions and, um, you know, funding exit polls to make sure there's been no corruption, that kind right. of thing. Uh, when I talk about democracy promotion, I'm actually talking about something different. And in a sense, it's two things. The first thing I'm talking about is storytelling, right? We tell this story about democracy and that's how we promote it. And we try and co-opt people onto the side of democracy and against this barbaric other that's back in the past. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's partly that. Um, and it's also partly, so democracy promotion as foreign policy, there is kind of a relatively old idea now in international relations that you can think about foreign policy in a different way. So rather than thinking about foreign policy as the work that diplomats and spies do and armies, um, you can think about foreign policy with a small f and a small p as a series of processes which happen sort of close to home often, which enable us to tell the difference between what's foreign and what's domestic in the first place. Right, Uh, interesting. so So I take that idea that foreign policy is actually about determining what counts as foreign 
and the really seminal work on this, which was by, that's a very gendered term, isn't it? But <laughs> by the father of post-structural international relations, that's going to hold on. <laughs> this is by um, David Campbell, and it's called Writing Security. And he's interested in, well, if you want to know what, what's American, what's domestically American, you better look into the history of what's un-American. Interesting. And of course, being un-American has nothing to do with whether you're born in America or not through a lot of history. It's to do with whether or not you're gay or whether or not you're a communist yeah. or whether or not you're an indigenous. Native they American, had an un-American yeah. commission. Yeah, yes, exactly. Right. So and so he and so there's a sort of chapter on that, but there's also right. a chapter on um, America's relationship with Japan and the war on drugs. So there's all these different things that right. he, he, he views as he, he shows that they have been thought of as un-American and that's foreign policy for him. Right. And so I, I take that idea and run with it. Thank you very much, David Campbell. Um, and I say, well, actually, democracy promotion is a subset of this, that we can determine what's domestic and what's foreign by asking, do they sign up to democracy? And by democracy, we mean liberal democracy. Right. Yeah? And there's a whole agenda about this. So every time a bomb goes off somewhere, there is a call to teach more narrative history in our schools. Right. Um, if you think... And specific kinds of history, the way oh, that they yeah. teach it mm-hmm. is, 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 is not really history, in my view. It's more propaganda, you could say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah, you could. And, and so, and I, and I think, so my partner's a history teacher and um, she's doing Sort of really, really righteous work <laughs> teaching right. history in a comprehensive school in London, um, and she's not, she's not doing that at all. Like no. she's not teaching. Um, well, the great, the, the great teachers of... teach great history regardless of the syllabus. Yeah, exactly, uh, and that's great to hear. Uh, but yeah, Michael Gove and David Cameron have uh, were particularly keen on pushing this agenda of telling the story of um, the the evolution. Right, so evolution is obviously a natural process, yeah. not a violent process, just something that happens um, of British democratic institutions. And it's kind of like whitewashing or. I guess that's yeah. a, a loaded term anyway, but like whitewashing the empire, it's right? actually whitewashing, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's In like... In terms it, of your white skin. It's so weird that <laughs> yeah. we, of all countries, have a narrative about democracy when we are, you know, descended from an empire that is still in some ways in existence, although some of the chickens are coming home to roost about that as well. Mm. But like, I mean, I'm so aware now, I wasn't I wasn't born aware of colonialism and my, my terrible part within it. Like yeah, we don't teach that very well, do we, right. at schools? Yeah, right. right. And, and we have these jubilees, don't we? We have, yes. cele- let's celebrate the Queen all the time and mm. all of this stuff, which, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not that interested in the monarchy either way. Like, I'm not like... I, I am a Republican in in that sense. I don't support the the existence of the monarchy, but mm, it's not too, a yeah. big issue in general, apart from when we pay for the renovations in Buckingham Palace, but we don't pay for our disabled people's uh, benefits. Yeah. But, but I mean, apart from that sort of stuff, but the function of the monarchy, I guess, acts to continually whitewash. Mm. The, I mean, I recently watched The Queen uh, on Netflix. Uh, no, was it The Queen? Is it, is it, is it the, the Crown? That's the big thing. It's the early, oh, yes, I know early years. Of, yeah. And, and uh, it's got then, Doctor Who in it, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's playing Prince Philip, That's which right. is yeah. an interesting choice. He's good at it, but I mean, it is certainly making Prince Philip a more sympathetic character than he deserves to be. <laughs> Even though it's kind of being a bit madmen and truthful about it. Yeah. Um, but everything about that show, I kept on thinking, this is so. There's so much whitewashing here. Mm. There's so much, and and it, sure, it's done well, and sure, they're getting they're getting into the real humanity of the. I don't know why I did inverted commas. I mean, obviously, the, the, the royal family are humans. That's part <laughs> of the problem. Is we're told taught not to think of them as such. Mm, yeah, but, that's right. So yeah. they show them as humans, but they're still like there's there's whole sort of sequences in you know in the Commonwealth, the tour mm. where you know you see a little bit of you know. 
in the in this in the same episode as you see at the, at the beginning, Prince Philip being a little bit kind of questionable in his uh, treatment in his conversation with a tribal elder. You also later in that episode see him being super nice and cute with young black uh, boy, mm-hmm. uh, like showing him to be a kind of bene- beneficent racist mm, almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like, oh yeah, he said that dodgy thing, but look, he he was really nice to that boy. I'm like, maybe that happened. Maybe that's true. People are but, complicated, but, but, don't they? But the, but yeah. the reality of the truth of it is not yeah. the same as the story. Like, yeah. the story isn't that that Prince Philip is a human being. We know he's a human being. The story should surely be, what were we doing? Like, I've got a friend who's a comedian who does a show about, who's done a number of shows about, she, she was born in Kenya. She's, she, she grew up in a kind of, in a, in a, in a kind of tribal setting and, and uh, had quite a kind of complicated past life but the, but, but the reason for that is that she, you know her parents were involved in the genocide in Kenya like they you know her, the reason her dad was a terrible father in many ways is because he he was yeah, the product yeah. of a genocide right. like like that was hap- and she is very aware yeah. that the queen was honeymooning at that mm-hmm. time and I think that that's in that series I think there's a whole sequence of them you know there's a bit like are they going to get hit by the giraffe oh no they get away from the giraffe which there's a genocide happening in that country I mean you know historians uh, and fans of that show can 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 no doubt fact check this and find out if I'm wrong about whether that's exactly the moment, but that definitely happened. Mm. Whether it happened in right. yeah. in that narrative of the Queen or of the Crown or not, yeah, yeah. And and you know that's <sighs> whiteness really be, needs to be reckoned with. I, mm. I I I very much believe, and I mean. Part of the reason I believe this is because, you know, there are people of colour in my family. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I, I'm yeah. But yeah, right. Yeah. And maybe that, and it's not to say that that's, we shouldn't need that to make us open our eyes, mm-hmm. right? That shouldn't be what we need. But um, it's definitely, uh, and I, hopefully I was anti-racist before then, um, but I, it definitely makes it kind of, I don't know, it feels like there's so much that white people have not had to reckon with. Like of we course, yeah. we did a show for Spark London called Multicultural Minds. It was in a, a charity gig for Mind and it was like lots of different people from different cultural backgrounds talking about their mental health. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially I didn't want to host it. I didn't feel like a white person should host it. And then I, and then I didn't want to tell a story. And then I realised that actually for, for white people to not tell our story coded white, like this is what... Being a white person, this is this is the way that being a white person has affected my mental health. Yeah, right. I I also have a yeah. race in inverted commas. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. The, the, my 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 grandparents kind of. Uh, my, I mean, my, my grandfather was born in the Raj, like he was born in India, like there, oh, really? there and he came across. Yeah. My grandmother was working class Northern who aspired to posh right mm. so that is a white construction yeah. that affected my mother and her and then that construction from her then affected me mm. like so it it's it, you know and uh, you know it's a it's an interesting uh thing to to yeah. think of us as kind of white people consider themselves raceless don't they exactly and right. so men don't have a gender and white people right, don't right, have right, race and right. it's really yeah right. and it's very problematic and it's um it's a poisonous thing to live with right. because it poisons your relationships right yeah i think absolutely but, yeah yeah. I mean, absolutely it does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. So, I mean, rather than let's descending into an endless kind of like two white people talking about how bad white people are, okay. uh, conversation <laughs> which can easily happen and, and they need to happen. Mm. But maybe, you know, people don't necessarily want to hear, hear every every week on this show be the same thing. Um, 
it's about time to sort of say, first of all, as you're a listener, you'll probably know, it's kind of become a bit of a rod to my own back now, because at this point I say it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, which it has been, but <laughs> because it's kind of become a catchphrase, I'm super aware that it seems ingenuine to say it. It does. But, it seems very genuine. You know, well, it's been a good. pleasure getting better good. I'm, I'm glad that well. I'm glad that I'm glad that my genu- genuineness has come across, or that I've fooled you. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the last question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? So I made a list. Oh, so only a, it's only a good. small list. Good. Um, so first of all, I would like to plug my book, yep. uh, which is called "Democracy Promotion as Foreign Policy: Temporal Othering in International Relations," um, and it is. A little bit expensive. Yeah. Um, if anybody wanted a code to get it slightly cheaper, I can give you a discount code. <laughs> um, but if you are a student or an academic, maybe you could consider ordering it for your university library. Um, right. Students seem to enjoy reading it. Um, I would like to plug my class, International Development and Public Policy, which is um, if you're a University of London student or you'd like to become one, then you can come and do my class and it's really ace and you get to talk about your emotions quite a lot. That's nice. I would also like to plug my sister's blog, if I might. We haven't talked at all about my sister. We haven't. Um, But she's kind of a mummy blogger, but she is extremely funny. She's one of the people who makes me laugh the most in the world. And her blog is very funny and you should look at it. And it is thelittleadventurer, all one word, dot com. And also my student writes a blog called thelondonfreewheel.com about the experience of being um, a student in a wheelchair, uh, who uses a wheelchair. And last but not least, I would like to plug your local comprehensive school. <laughs> Send your well, kids there. Your local comprehensive school is undoubtedly doing an excellent job. Well, that's all. I mean, those are some great plugs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what like so the comprehensive school part? Like, what what makes you? I guess your partner works in one. Right? Yes, yes. So she's a history teacher at um, I'm going to get the name on Fulham, Fulham College Boys School, and it's it's a wonderful, radically ordinary thing. Right. I mean, yeah. and, uh, I, I should say as well, my partner works in primary schools, and primary schools are also doing a great job too. I, it's a complicated one. For me because I do believe in the comprehensive system but I had a hellish time within it. Yeah, I didn't um, have a great time at my exactly. comprehensive school either. But hopefully things are better now and it sounds like I think so. both of our partners are working to make them better yeah. so let's, let's support that. Uh, that's all great. Well yeah, thank you. It's been really great. Uh, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye everyone. Bye. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA podcast. You can like it on Facebook. www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. <laughs>